0: All right, here we go with the OHSU Tox Fellowship Journal Club for November 2007, talking about not your parents mud piles, this is the advanced acidosis group, not the 101 or 201, but the 301 version of what causes acidosis. So we're going to talk about some um, uncommon substances that are kind of fun toxicologically that uh, uh, can cause metabolic acidosis. So up first is our fellow Nate talking about some new findings with uh, Tylenol.
1: So I have two articles that I'm going to present. The first one is entitled Profound Metabolic Acidosis and Oxoferlianuria in an Adult. Uh, this was by Hodgman et al. out of Upstate New York Poison Center. And this was a case report. Uh, and the reason why they did this, this case report was to uh, report on a case of a profound metabolic acidosis where they were unable to find any other etiologies, but uh, and retrospectively were able to identify inorganic acid that we'll talk about. So the case report was a 58-year-old female who presented uh, confused uh, to an emergency department of a small uh, local uh, community hospital. Uh, The Patient's husband had reported that the wife had been uh, confused for several days, had not been eating well, had diminished hearing, and most recently what prompted the uh, trip to the emergency department was that she, uh, he noticed that she was uh, breathing rapidly. Uh, her past medical history had included uh, analgesic and diazepam abuse, alcoholism, anxiety, depression, eating disorder, COPD, and migraines. Her current medications included fluoxetine, diazepam, lansoprazole uh, estrogen, and sumatriptan. So, on exam, uh, she was uh, appeared rather disheveled, cachectic. She was tachypnic, and uh, the report states that she had difficulty hearing, although they didn't establish why that was or how they were able to ascertain that. Uh, blood pressure was 171 over 93. Her heart rate was 30. She was slightly tachypneic, uh, and she was breathing about 35 breaths per minute. And her rectal temperature was also notably low at 32.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, there really wasn't... Oh, her heart rate was 80. Oh, uh, her heart rate was 80? On physical exam, it uh, was kind of unremarkable, except uh, that they did notice uh, that her extremities were cool and mottled. It uh, sounds like they did a brief uh, neurology exam and didn't reveal any uh, focal neurologic uh, deficits at that time. In her laboratory, they uh, uh, saw a, when they did an arterial blood gas, they noticed a pH of 7.02, PCO2 of 10, and an anion gap of uh, 31. Her creatinine was slightly elevated, 1.7 uh, milligrams per deciliter. Uh, glucose was normal at 128, or just slightly elevated. Uh, ECG showed a narrow sinus rhythm with a, or, yeah a sinus rhythm with a narrow QRS and prolonged QTc to 564 milliseconds. Of note, they also checked the venous lactate that was 3.1 and a salicylate, uh was negative. Especially with uh, those uh, findings, uh, they did notice that she had an AST of uh, 1,308 and an ALT of 348, and that she still had a Tylenol level of 49 micrograms per milliliter. Uh, they really couldn't explain the degree of acidosis by the uh, lactate uh, level of only three, uh, and so they uh, kind of ruled out in their differential seizure, sepsis, and thiamine deficiency. Uh, and their working diagnosis at the time was a potential to- toxic alcohol ingestion. So I initially managed her by trying to warm her up, uh, giving her uh, intravenous fluids with sodium bicarb. They also started NAC, and then they transferred her to a tertiary care center. Uh, At that time, she still had a persistent acidosis. She had an anion gap of 27, an arterial pH of 7.05, PCO2 was still low at 15. Uh, They also noticed that uh, she had a low uh, potassium level at 2.2. There, they did test for acetone, methanol, and ethylene glycol, and those were all negative. So her hospital course, uh, despite being on, uh, she continued on the NAC, uh, they also uh, not- noticed that she had some ventricular arrhythmias. They did not really give a good explanation for why that was. Uh, really unknown if um, that was still during when she was still uh, acidotic. Uh, but they gave her lidocaine, magnesium, and potassium, and the arrhythmia seemed to resolve. Uh, it took about 48 hours for her acidosis to resolve as well. Uh, and then on discharge, uh, she had normal creatinine and hepatic transaminases. Uh, And then kind of retrospectively uh, they had sent off a urine organic acid survey and it showed an elevated level of 5-oxoproline at a level of 2350 millimoles per mole of creatinine whereas normal is about less than 100. So uh, they go on to talk about uh, 5-oxoproline. It's an intermediary of the gamma glutamyl cycle and that cycle is shown uh, in figure 2. Uh, basically, that cycle is responsible for the transport of amino acids across cell membranes as well as the synthesis of glutathione. Um, they uh, talk a little bit about this and also in the article. Uh, there are two uh, seemingly uh, inherited uh, disorders of the um, gamma glutamyl cycle. Uh, one is a glutathione, glutathione synthetase deficiency, and that shows up with uh, metabolic acidosis, hemolysis, jaundice, and uh, you, uh, they, you also notice the 5 Um And most of these uh, patients are, are, all have mental retardation and other central nervous uh, disturbances. Seems to be uh, an autosomal recessive pattern of inheritance. Um, so over the course of the, about the past 20 years, there have been uh, several case reports uh, where uh, investigators have uh, not been able to find a very good explanation uh, and then actually found large amounts of 5 Uh And, and seemingly uh, connected with all of these cases are, uh, number one, an acute illness and also... Uh, in most cases there was a routine use of uh, acetaminophen, so not necessarily overdoses, um, but just uh, simply uh, using uh, acetaminophen for uh, either pain, uh, fever, or, or such. Uh, and they go on to say that uh, none of the cases have a rec at least recognized defect of the gamma glutamyl cycle, uh, and all of those tables are listed in Table 1. Uh, Really, you know, basically all of them had uh, some type of an acidosis with an anion gap. Most, all of them had, you know, Tylenol usage. Although some of those were not recorded, uh, and then uh, either had elevations of five uh, oxy- oxyproline in the blood or into the ur- in the urine. Um, and they just most
0: most of the urine are pretty. Ele- I mean, obviously there's some publication bias, you know, considering the levels of less than 100, but most of these are in the 10 to 20,000 plus range in the urine so it's sort of certainly a massive you know uh excretion of this I mean, most of them were pretty acidotic ranging <coughs> from what's like 6 8 in one severe case up to not so bad normals and 6 7 3 8 and 7 4 9 and some some others
1: yeah and i think it, you know when they when they go when they talk about you know some of what they found in the literature Again, it, all, it always seemed as, uh, you know, there was some type of acute illness. They mentioned pneumonia, pyelonephritis, there was one uh, case of myxodemic crisis, infected ventri- uh, ventricular peritoneal shunt, uh, endocarditis, pancreatitis, um, and all had, you know, some type of uh, acetaminophen use. Um, there, was only, there was very few cases where they actually talk about uh, acetaminophen overdose um, in these cases. Uh, there also was kind of two of the outliers. Um, there, were, there was uh, a case of a previously healthy 35-year-old female who was hospitalized with a right lower lobe uh, lung abscess, and she was receiving the antibiotics flu-cloxacillin and net- Uh And while she was in the hospital, actually hospital day 19, she developed a, a high anti- anti-gap acidosis with an anti-gap of 29, pH was 7.17. Uh, and her serum lactate was reported as only mildly increased and ketones and alcohols were negative. So this was kind of unusual. She'd already been in the hospital for 19 days. Um, they basically stopped her antibiotics two days later and over the next week her acidosis resolved. Uh, they actually did look, uh, they did do a, a urinary uh, organic acid survey and actually did notice very elevated uh, urinary 5-oxyproline. And so, at least in this report, they speculate that one of the antibiotics, or the combination of both, interfered with 5-oxyprolinase, one of the other enzymes in that pathway. Um, But, you know, the authors in this paper uh, are not really sure that uh, that really necessarily makes sense because in observed congenital 5-oxyprolinase deficiency, um, they actually, you do notice the 5-oxyproline in the urine but usually in those cases you don't get a metabolic acidosis. So, of note, they actually did not talk
0: about the use of acetaminophen in that case. Which, I mean, someone who's febrile, you'd suspect that they would be getting some sort of antipyretic if she's being treated for pneumonia, but you know, again, not mentioned, so you don't know.
1: Yeah. So, you know, going on to actually talk a little bit about the cycle and to try to figure out a, an actual mechanism for this uh, occurring, um, you know, again, uh, there, you know, is a a specific enzyme called uh, gamma glutamylcysteine synthetase which is one of the final steps in the creation of glutathione. Um, the activity of this enzyme is uh, uh, influenced by glutathione which acts as a feedback inhibitor. Um, there's, they've also noticed that oxidative stress and other cytokines um, have, identified, uh, have been identified <coughs> that can increase the activity or expression of this enzyme. Um, so uh, the product of uh, You know a the reaction um, with the glutathione synthetase uh, is uh, Yeah, gamma glutamyl cysteine is conjugated with glycine, and that's actually uh, what forms the glutathione so their speculation is that uh, if there's a problem with the glutathione synthetase, then what happens to the gamma glutamyl cysteine is that it gets shunted over and uh, is then subsequently formed as a 5 oxyproline, and that gets built up and can't get um, converted into a, a, a different uh, chemical. Um, so they think that it, in times, uh, perhaps um, with using uh, acetaminophen. It depletes the glutathione, so you rev up that system, and either some, you know, there's, you know, a, a deficiency in glycine uh, or cysteine uh, supplementation, and so you do get a buildup of the 5 oxyproline and you get the uh, acidosis. Um, they actually looked at rat. Uh, one uh, group of uh, <coughs> uh, scientists looked at rats that were fed a diet high in acetaminophen. They actually used a pretty uh, big dose. One gram per kilo per day, and all of those rats had elevated 5-urine 5-oxyproline. Ox- um, but neither the control rats nor uh, acetaminophen rats, whose diet was also supplemented with methionine, which is pretty similar to glutathione, excreted excess 5-oxyproline. Uh, they also mentioned, uh, real briefly, um, the kidneys as another potential source of 5-oxyproline. Uh, we know that Tylenol not only affects the liver, but also affects the kidneys. Uh, so they've looked at uh, an acetaminophen metabolite, acetaminophen uh, cysteine, uh, and uh, noticed that if they gave uh, mice uh, that uh, metabolite prior to the administration of acetaminophen, that uh, renal glutathione stores were reduced, and they actually noticed an increase uh, in nephrotoxicity. Uh, so, they kind of speculate that, you know, maybe some acetaminophen metabolites uh, deplete glutathione and then uh, makes uh, the renal cells more susceptible to injury by NACI. Uh And that also may account for the increased production of uh, 5-oxyproline in the urine. Um, however, in this, you know, when they looked at this, they didn't also measure uh, 5-oxyproline in the serum. So, they're really not sure if it's necessarily just the kidneys that are uh, producing this. So just kind of a you know a single case report that uh, talked about you know just the elevated levels of 5 oxyproline. Um, one of their limitations, they thought to this case report is that there are actually two different forms of oxyproline. There's a L form and a D form. Uh, and they uh, in this study at least didn't, or in this case report, didn't speciate the, uh, t- between the two types. There's a 5D oxyproline which is derived from D-glutamate, uh, and D-glutamate can be found in uh, different foods and turnover of intestinal microflora uh, and then D-glutamate is cyclized to D-oxyproline um, by an enzyme that's found in renal and in hepatic tissue. So just one other, um, one other kind of co-founding but uh, they at least reported that they were unaware of any reports of 5 uh, deoxyproline resulting in metabolic acidosis. However, it doesn't sound like a lot of these people have actually speciated it. Um, So now that we kind of talked about maybe one of the (coughs) methods in this uh, second article will go by a little faster. Uh, The second article is increased anion gap metabolic acidosis as a result of 5-oxyproline, a role for acetaminophen. And this was by Fendis uh, et al. out of Baylor University Medical Center. And uh, in this article uh, they actually talk about four cases. Uh, that they had of uh, an acidosis uh, with elevated levels of uh, 5-oxyproline. Uh, and so we'll kind of skip through some of this because we talked about it in the other article. Um, so in their cases they had, again, you know, several cases that were pretty similar to the other one. Uh, someone uh, had a history of vaginal squamous cell cancer uh, that had uh, acute renal failure, so she was sick. Um, she was also using uh, I think uh, as, uh for pain, uh, when she was uh, initially seen at an uh, outside uh, hospital, she was in renal failure, she had seizures, she had a peritoneal, a retroperitoneal hemorrhage, uh, it appeared that she might be septic, um, so she was transferred for further care. She had this hyena and gap acidosis, I think the actual amount was uh, 47. Um, uh, They measured uh, lactate uh, and that was actually uh, negative. They looked, there was no evidence of ethanol, methanol, or ethylene glycol ingestion. Doesn't actually look like they actually measured levels, but they weren't too concerned about uh, that that as being the cause of the acidosis. They also had negative serum ketones. Um, They tried to treat her and actually when they were looking at organic anions uh, revealed uh, not necessarily really high amounts, but uh, 0.7 millimoles uh, per millimole of creatinine uh, and then despite uh, care she uh, died because of the cancer. Uh, in the second case uh, there was a lady, a 46-year-old female that was admitted for severe metabolic acidosis, respiratory failure. Um, she had actually recurrent episodes for and admissions. Um, she had an anion gap. Um, had mild elevations of her liver function tests. She admitted to frequent use of acetaminophen. Um, And so she, you know, actually came in with a pretty significant uh, acidosis. pH was 6.88. Let's see, her gap was 33. Uh, They actually, you know, again, found elevated levels of uh, 5-oxyproline and and not necessarily uh, any other reasons. However, you know, they gave her fluids and then she actually improved um, and they actually measured, uh, after she got better, they actually measured uh, glutathione, <clears> glutathione <throat> sensitase activity. And, that, and actually, at that point in time, they were in this uh, supernormal range. Uh, case three, somewhat similar. Again, you know, an acidosis, elevated levels of 5-oxyproline. Um, and then, uh, in the last case, uh, a female was admitted to the hospital for an infected uh, right knee joint. She was given, uh, actually, they went back and calculated 107 grams of acetaminophen during her six-week hospital course. She developed an anti-gap acidosis during her hospitalization. I was also placed on a number of antibiotics. Uh, And then, actually, her acidosis, once they stopped the acetaminophen, actually improved. Um, so in their discussion, they again talk about you know glutathione synthetase uh, deficiency. We mentioned it uh, before. Um, acquired 5-oxyprolinuria has been described in adults. Uh, they list several contributory factors including malnutrition, pregnancy, strict vegetarian diet, and they kind of speculate that there may be limited glycine availability as a common precipitating cause. And again, they mention you know, the use of acetaminophen, uh, they also mentioned an anticonvulsant, convulsant and then the antibiotics that we had talked about in the other case report. Um, I have one other kind of notice that the other article hadn't talked about is that it seems that a lot of these cases uh, that have been reported um, uh, are mostly women. And so they kind of speculate that the activity of several isoenzymes in the cycle uh, are now, are known to be different in uh, men and women, so they speculate that uh, women may be more susceptible to developing the 5-oxyproline uh, in the acidosis. So, I think that was pretty much uh, how, uh, pretty much the rest of that article. So kind yeah, of
0: it. yeah. I think lastly that little pharmacogenetic variation sounded interesting as we more and more. So there may be some sort of gender role for whether there's a difference in gamma glutamyl cycle enzymes that are deficient, and they don't know which one. But basically, I mean, it all hinges back on. Um, Glutathione, which is basically this tripeptide, three amino acids hooked together and it can break up and give off a cysteine or a glycine or glutamic acid and then get resynthesized by a series of enzymes in this cycle and somehow it acts as a negative feedback. And we've all seen cases of severe acidosis with early synaminophen ingestions and this is just going to highlight that it's present in a bunch of other variations including chronic use and abuse. Of, uh, Analgesics containing acetaminophen and propoxyphene, or acetaminophen and nar- narcotic. So, it's something to watch out for. I know we've seen you know, handfuls of cases where you get severely acidotic, and we rule out the usual methanol, ethylene, glycol, aspirin, the things that are on a mud pile. That this isn't on a mud pile. Um, and it turns out to be, hmm, we don't know, and it gets better, and we don't worry about it. But I think they've taken the extra step here and looked and, and come up with this unique explanation for severe acidosis. So I don't know, it's something we may want to check for in the future. I don't know how available the specific level is, but I think you can get a general organic acid assays here. Uh, I know Pete does that pretty frequently. That so should be an interesting uh, thing. We'll probably see more of this written up in the, f- you know, as the future as more and more cases start uh, being recognized. That's all right. Well good, we'll change gears a little bit. <laughs> and talk about yet another unusual cause of uh, acidosis that we probably see and and, um, don't think about very much. This has to do with the chronic use of uh, propofol. um, This specific case is someone who was uh, in the ICU for a long time.
2: Okay, so my article is entitled Propofol Infusion Syndrome, a Case of Increasing Morbidity with Traumatic Brain Injury by Sabsevich et al. out of Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Um, so this is also a case report, um, cases of a 16-year-old boy who suffered a traumatic brain injury while he was out riding his bicycle. Um, developed an epidural hematoma which required um, craniotomy with evacuation. Then post-operatively he was placed in the ICU on propofol sedation initially at 1.66 mg per kg per hour and then he remained comatose. Uh, he's developed, at that point in time, some cerebral edema with increased intracranial pressure, which they initially chose to manage conservatively with intermittent mannitol infusions. Um, but because of the increased ICP, his propofol infusion had to be increased, and it, it ranged anywhere between 6.7 and 8.33 mg per kg per hour, um, which was continued over a course of about 35 hours. Um, At that time, they also had to begin a phenylephrine infusion at a rate of 300 micrograms per minute um, and crystalloids in order to keep his mean arterial pressure with a map of 70. So his cerebral, sorry, so his cerebral perfusion pressure was greater than 70. Um, About, I guess about 48 hours after the infusion, they noted that his urine had become a rusty brown color Um, So at that point in time, they went ahead and decreased the dosage of propofol back to the initial rate of 1.66 mg per kg per hour um, because of the signs that had developed of acute renal failure. So despite this, his intracranial pressure remained high, so he went back to the OR um, for a repeat evacuation and um, marsupialization of the left frontal temporal bone flap. What during intraoperatively, his creatinine worsened to about 2.2 mg per deciliter, and he also developed a metabolic acidosis with pH of 7.1 and a bicarb of 10. Um, And at that point in time, his uh, CPK was measured at just about 75,000. So they began aggressive hydration, bicarbonate, and um, propofol at that point in time was replaced then by midazolam for sedation because they expected um, propofol infusion syndrome as uh, the etiology of what was happening. So at that point, day four of his hospitalization, his CPK continued to increase um, to about 150,000. AST, ALT were also both elevated, um, and his LDH was uh, 4,600. So troponin was at 17.39, and then on EKG, he showed a left bundle branch block with diffuse changes in the ST segments and the T waves. Um, His metabolic acidosis, however, normalized once they had discontinued the propofol and started the bicarbonate infusion but then anuria developed and his creatinine jumped to 4.2. Um, on day five he developed profound hypotension and despite aggressive hydration and pressors um, with a phenyl, uh, phenylephrine infusion restarted um, he developed a wide complex tachycardia bradycardia and asystole and the hypotension was unresponsive to those initial pressor therapies. Um, So, let's see here. So, in the discussion of this article, he he subsequently died. In the discussion of this article, um, they talked about propofol as an intravenous sedative sedative hypnotic. And they also discussed how they had ruled out malignant hypothermia and sepsis in their differentials and how they had decided on propofol infusion syndrome. (coughs) They referred to an article by Bray from 1998 (coughs) where he identified the features of the syndrome Um, And they are, one, a sudden onset of marked bradycardia, which is resistant to to treatment uh, that progresses to asystole, and that's required. And then you can have any one of the next following four, which is um, lipemic plasma, clinically enlarged liver, or um, one that's filled with fat at autopsy, a metabolic acidosis, muscle involvement with evidence of reptomyelitis. Um, which this patient definitely met those clinical criteria. Um, then the article at that point in time goes on to discuss the mechanism by which this may happen and why we see it more often in children than we do in adults. So critically ill children um, lack energy and they lack glycogen reserves uh, that we need to use and these times it, so they move quickly to using fats and fatty acids for secondary energy sources. Um, propofol, however, inhibits the transport protein for long-chain fatty acids <coughs> into the mitochondrial matrix, and that may also have, and it may also debatably have a direct effect on oxidative phosphorylation within the mitochondria. Um, so the authors also noted an association between the catecholamines given as pressors and um, propofol infusion syndrome, in that catecholamines increase cardiac output, which increases the first-pass metabolism and clearance of propofol. This then leads to increased propofol requirements and then the beta and beta receptor antagonism, which leads to decreased cardiac function, resulting in a need for increased catecholamines. So you're constantly chasing your tail in this situation. So, and then in addition to myocardial impairments, catecholamines also stimulate the release of fatty acids. So you have a combined inhibition of fatty acid metabolism by propofol, and it's speculated that the increase in fatty acids with the inhibition of the metabolism may lead to irreversible muscle damage that was seen in this case. Um, They then close the article by discussing some potential genetic factors um, that may contribute, um, such as, let's see here, but I think they're pretty, they're not sure.
0: There's some, yeah, Yeah. these mitochondrial-based myopathies that are, you know, (coughs) do exist in, you know, in some patients, but didn't sound like this was one of those. But, yeah. So yeah, so it's an interesting. I know our, our pediatricians really dislike putting um, patients on propofol, especially high dose, really, really any dose, because they worry about uh, this, EDO, this syndrome where you get acidosis, rhabdomyolysis, <coughs> and uh, liver injury as well. And, and it may be, the big risk factor may be the fact that they're on pressors, and um, they're chewing up their r- metabolic rate faster on pressors. And maybe our patients who are on meth may do the same thing, which is, I guess, the other question we never see. We have these people who are on meth, and they're all revved up, and they're hypothermic already, and they're at risk for rhabdo, as we, we know them to be. And then we say that nothing's working in the sedatum, we've gone through a boatload of benzos, let's go to propofol. And, you know, the question is are we inducing this syndrome? Are we making their rhabdo worse by giving them propofol? Are we making their acidosis worse because they've exhausted all their metabolic beta oxidation in their mitochondria? Questions we don't know the answers to, but maybe worth studying in the future. But perhaps, sort of, a, a, a negative uh, paper for sort of the use of high dose propofol for, for a prolonged period of time in the ICU, and something we have to keep aware of what the, the downsides are. So, good, good presentation on that. So, brings us around to a paired set of papers, which are should be mandatory reading for, I think, everybody in toxicology. So I consider these the the yin and yang of uh, ethylene glycol disasters. And I'll let uh, these that were in pediatrics many years ago talk to tell you about these two cases.
3: All right. So the first paper is entitled mm-hmm. Misidentification of Proprionic Acid as Ethylene Glycol in a Patient with Methylmalonic Acidemia. Uh, it's by a shoemaker at a St. Louis University Medical Center, and uh, the case report uh, begins with a three-month-old child who was brought by his parents to the emergency department with a one-day history of uh, feeding intolerance, followed by increasing lethargy and tachypnea. The infant was obtunded and had otitis media, and the initial uh, test revealed a metabolic acidosis with a pH of 7.02 and an anion gap of 26.3. The initial serum bicarbonate was three. The child had ketone urea and a blood sugar of 52 milligrams per deciliter. The patient uh, had blood cultures and was admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit, where urinary and serum drug and ingestion screening specimens were obtained. And on the second day of hospitalization, an independent clinical laboratory reported that the serum level of acetone was 215 milligrams per liter, or 3,700 micromoles per liter, and the blood level of ethylene glycol was 180 milligrams per liter, or 18 milligrams per deciliter. The child's condition initially improved, uh, but the mild lethargy and poor feeding continued. The parents could not account for uh, the exposure to the ethylene glycol, and because of this and other factors, the child was placed in protective custody. About eight weeks later, the child vomited, became lethargic, had muscle spasms, and began hyperventilating, was again brought to the emergency department by the foster parents, and again had a severe anion gap metabolic acidosis with a presenting pH of 6.9, and appeared uh, moribund. Was resuscitated, uh, intubated, and was given bicarbonate, and the laboratory again reported a serum ethylene glycol concentration of 91 milligrams per deciliter. A second laboratory was consulted and found comparable concentrations of ethylene glycol in the serum by gas chromatography. The presumed ethylene glycol intoxication was treated with an ethanol infusion and dialysis. However, the child's condition deteriorated and he was declared brain dead and life support was discontinued. Just before uh, the child's death, however, the initial laboratory reported that residue from the baby's bottle allegedly used by the biologic mother for an unsupervised feeding 105 hours prior to the admission was quote-unquote positive for ethylene glycol, and the mother was arrested on a charge of first-degree murder and incarcerated. While in prison awaiting trial, the mother actually delivered a second child who was placed in foster care, and two weeks later, that child became obtunded and acidotic and was diagnosed uh, at an outside facility as having vitamin B12 unresponsive methylmalonic acidemia. There were three samples of the initial child's uh, serum which had been stored frozen for seven months, and these were sent um, to the authors for metabolic screening. Um, So it goes on to describe the methods uh, for determining um, the end outcome, which actually determined that the first child Um, actually suffered from methylmalonic acidemia as well and so they go through a very in-depth methods describing um, how they uh, performed this using gas chromatography as well as gas chromatography mass spectrometry and they showed um, that uh, they measured three serum samples from the initial child uh, and the elevation of methylmalonic acid, propionic acid, and other compounds strongly suggested that the initial child had methylmalonic acidemia, uh, as did the second uh, subsequently born sibling. And um, because there was some degradation in these samples, um, they discussed sort of how they went about uh, making sure that this was correct, uh, and they looked into uh, trying to figure out why there was misidentification initially of propionic acid as ethylene glycol, so the the laboratory uh, that reported the initial samples um, it it states that the ethylene glycol has has been reported to disappear from blood samples in storage, although rate the of the disappearance in the stored samples appeared insufficient to explain the large discrepancy. So when they tested for ethylene glycol, they found um, that the values were much, much lower than the initial values that were reported. (coughs) Um, And they go through uh, describing that with gas chromatography, uh, sort of the bottom line is that um, really mass spectrometry with gas chromatography is uh, sort of the gold standard and uh, is expected to, so that you do not have misdiagnosis uh, based on just gas chromatography alone. I don't know how in-depth we want to go into the. No, that's, I mean, that's basically the
0: essential is they just use, originally in the first lab they made the mistake was just gas chromatography mm-hmm. without mass spec and then you need to use both mm-hmm. in order to. And, and getting ethylene glycol levels is tricky which is why we have only a few labs in our region and probably around the country that can really do it correctly and give us accurate samples. In this case they misidentified it as positive and had very bad outcome for both the child and, and the mother.
3: Yeah. So actually, and then it does uh, have uh, sort of the bright side, is that the mother was exonerated from the charge of murder um, based on the results of, of the study.
0: Right, and I think one way they actually sent it to another lab somewhere else who essentially I told them it was a, a, a yes. possible ethylene glycol ingestion pre and post dialysis and the, that third lab made the same mistake.
3: Yes, and that was uh, a lab that used uh, just mass spectrometry, or I'm sorry, just uh, gas chromatography as well, and they did report levels uh, in <coughs> samples that had been spiked with propionic acid. They had two levels, one had been spiked with 250 milligrams and one with 25 milligrams and labeled them pre- and post-dialysis, and they reported levels of ethylene glycol at uh, 238 and 8.8 milligrams per liter of ethylene glycol but outside laboratory.
0: So the opposite side of the story yes, so is case number two
3: Yes, this next case is entitled intentional infantile ethylene glycol poisoning presenting as an inherited metabolic disorder It's by Wolf, um, and it's out of uh, Harvard in Massachusetts and Yale in Connecticut and This was a six-month-old girl who was hospitalized on three occasions for irritability vomiting acidosis and hypotonia uh, she was previously healthy, and had been initially, uh, on her first visit, admitted to rule out sepsis. She had decreased urination for feeding for three days, and on admission had begun to vomit, had become lethargic, pale, tachypneic, and hypotonic. And the initial uh, blood gas values showed an arterial pH of 7.12, and a PCO2 of 12, uh, and a bicarbonate of four. The anion gap on this original uh, visit was 24, and the serum osmolality was 283. Her serum electrolyte values and renal function were normal, except for a mildly elevated chloride at 115, and blood glucose was 213 milligrams per deciliter. She was given sodium bicarbonate and antibiotics and transferred to a tertiary care facility, although. Uh, cultures of her blood, urine, and CSF all came up negative. She was given uh, a diagnosis of suspected uh, urinary tract infection. And during this time, they actually, uh, on day two of the hospitalization, they had collected uh, a urine specimen and sent this for uh, organic acid analysis. And it had trace amounts of three dicarboxylic acids. I couldn't read that first one because it, it got cut off. Yeah, the, the names aren't yeah, the off. names aren't
0: that important, yeah.
3: So, uh, so the child was discharged home on day 5 of hospitalization <coughs> at that time. And 6 days later the hospital uh, the infant was readmitted to the hospital with tachypnea, vomiting, lethargy and pallor and had an initial uh, arterial pH of 7.18, uh pCO2 of 19 and a bicarbonate of 7. The anion gap at that time was 28 and the patient was again treated with bicarbonate uh, drip and was transferred uh, to the hospital, tertiary care symptom or center where uh, all of the signs, uh, symptoms and laboratory abnormalities were resolved by the second day of hospitalization. After the child recovered, urine was collected and was analyzed by gas chromatography mass spectrometry for organic acids and the results were normal at that time. Plasma amino acids. Which, which is the
0: right test, according yes. to the previous article. <laughs>
3: yes. Plasma <laughs> amino acid and serum carnitine values were normal. And two weeks later, when the child was having no symptoms, uh, the patient was examined for a metabolic disorder, and all of the, the labs uh, were normal at that time. Uh, they did, however, assume, despite normal findings, that the child may have some sort of fatty acid oxidation defect and started her on a low-fat diet. Uh, the patient had no symptoms until two months later, when at age eight months of age, she was readmitted to the original hospital with lethargy, weakness, and poor feeding of one day's duration. She had severe metabolic acidosis again, and received bicarb, and was transferred to the children's hospital again. The urine and blood specimens were collected while the child was ill, and were analyzed for organic acids and amino acids. And this analysis disclosed a large amount of glycolic acid with several unidentified peaks, suggesting the possibility of an ethylene glycol ingestion. There was also increased blood glycine concentration at 896 micromoles per liter, and the normal range for that is up to 318 micromoles per liter. And urine that was collected on day three of the hospitalization re- revealed hematuria and calcium oxalate crystaluria. urea. The results of a toxicology screen uh, <coughs> reported as negative, uh, but the serum that was collected on day of admission and frozen uh, was then reanalyzed and had an ethylene glycol level of 67.7 milligrams per deciliter. The extrapolation of the serum ethylene glycol level uh, suggested that approximately one tablespoon of 100% solution of ethylene glycol had been ingested by the child. So at this point they uh, were concerned for poisoning. They had admi- uh, contacted the local authorities and social services And they went to the child's home and there were no fingerprints, but there were bottles of antifreeze kept in the basement of the family's home. Uh, The ethylene glycol was detected in two bottles of formula that were set out for the infant. And the investigation did not disclose enough evidence for them to charge anyone directly. However, the parents uh, discharged from service their babysitter. And uh, they said that the work schedule paralleled the onset of illness in the child and after uh, that, uh, nine months later evaluation revealed that the child had no further symptoms uh, and that the neuroexam, developmental testing, vision, and hearing tests were all normal. So this, uh, they go on to talk about um, how they determined that ethylene glycol was present. Um, they discuss that and then uh, they discuss <coughs> in the results here Uh, mainly that the amino acid analysis had only shown increased glycine concentrations and uh, organic acid analysis of urine showed glycolic acid and four additional compounds that they subsequently identified as um, dimethylsilyl or trimethylsilyl derivatives of ethylene glycol, diethylene glycol, propylene glycol, and dipropylene glycol. And um, the results of the... uh, of these are shown uh, in the table.
0: And, and again those are all compounds that w- could be or would be expected with either ethylene glycol or diet ethylene glycol what might be in brake fluid or any hmm
3: And so the discussion they they discuss uh, how difficult it is to diagnose an intentional poisoning in a child uh, and that this case especially was difficult to to diagnose. Uh, they did investigate possible metabolic causes, in this case, uh, for the child's symptoms, and, um, and talk about how, because of its colorless, odorless sweet taste, it's uh, often missed, although a baby probably would, uh, if being forced fed a bottle, probably would take, <laughs> take whatever you gave them. Um, the uh, clinical triad fit very well uh, for ethylene glycol, and uh, they actually discussed uh, the fact that uh, they may have they suggest that the physicians may have consulted the Poison Control Center locally earlier um, in order to uh, sort of think through what else could be going on and perhaps uh, have caught this earlier. Um, and they talk about uh, that hyperglycemia can be a nonspecific feature of organic acid disorders uh, because of the inhibition of glycine cleavage enzyme by the organic acid. Um, however, in this trial, it was likely due to glycolic acid degradation.
0: So a great pair of lessons in both these cases is one where they assumed it was ethylene glycol because the lab misread it and turned out to be an inherited metabolic disorder, and mom eventually was exonerated only because she was pregnant with a second child. And the other one where the child came in several times with recurrent vomiting, was acidotic, and they assumed it was a recurrent metabolic disorder, but they didn't realize that at least implied the babysitter may have been poisoning the baby lethally with uh, ethylene glycol. So again in the differential for acidosis in a child should be ethylene glycol and methanol, of course, but also all these organic acid durias that we've talked about. Uh, so I think lesson, lesson learned on both of these.
4: Also elevated triglycerides mm-hmm. can confound the
0: test. Uh, the ethylene glycol, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And it's hard because you have to have a lab that really does this all the time to be to be good at it. <coughs> Let's turn to the the last one, which is also kind of a fascinating chemical, which, um, although I picked these articles a couple of weeks ago and handed them out just this weekend in the paper, they came from the AP out of actually Birmingham, Alabama, but has to do with a local angle to it. uh, Our own representative Peter DeFazio, a Democrat from Oregon, sponsoring a bill to stop the only plant in the United States, which happens to be in Oxford, Alabama, from making compound 1080, which is what we're going to talk about next. And actually, I looked this up, this bill has been essentially languishing in the Senate since 2005 because nobody wants to sponsor it because nobody's worried about compound 1080 because no one's heard about compound 1080. So here to scare you into uh,
5: uh,
0: action is our own Pat West.
5: (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to do a review article here uh, from... Uh, toxicological Reviews, 2006, Sodium Fluoroacetate Poisoning by Proudfoot et al from uh, the United Kingdom. Okay, uh, so uh, Sodium Fluoroacetate was, uh, is basically a rodenticide that was first used <coughs> during World War II. Uh, it was basically from uh, a, the a South African plant known as Uh, Gifblar, which was uh, known to be uh, toxic to farm animals and was uh, uh, basically given the number 1080 because they were uh, testing greater than a thousand compounds and found this one to be the uh, most toxic of all of them. Uh, It's also in low low concentration in tea leaves and guar gum. Um, So the considerable efficacy of uh, sodium fluoracetate against target species offset by the comparable toxicity of other mammals and to a lesser extent birds. And so it was uh, its use was curtailed significantly in 1990. Uh, really it's only used in the United States right now against uh, coyotes uh, which prey on sheep and goats. And uh, New Zealand still uses a large amount of the sodium fluoracetate. A lot, of, a lot of sheep there. A lot, lot of sheep there. So what they do is they actually put the sodium fluoracetate into a toxic collar, and the uh, coyotes attempting to kill the, uh, the livestock actually end up, end up puncturing the collars and uh, kill themselves, poison themselves with the sodium fluoracetate. Yeah, this has actually
0: been banned in a couple of states. There was an action in California to stop this practice from sheep, and I think it was tried in Washington, but I think it's still legal locally. And there's, like I said, there's one company that still makes this compound. And it's this big, heavy collar. You have to put it on literally most of your sheep. Because the idea is the coyotes attack the sheep. They go for, they go for the neck. They bite into this 1080. It takes a little while to work, as you're going to explain shortly. And the coyotes die. And then they stop attacking the sheep, as they learned from their
5: predecessors. Okay, so the epidemiology of estrogen fluoracetate poisoning is uh, in 1955. Brockman said that there were 22 cases of acute poisoning including 16 deaths, so it was fairly toxic. Uh, Only two real cases had uh, been reported in the literature up to that point. From uh, 1971 to 1981, there were 111 reported exposures in uh, Israel. And then, let's see and basically 30 of them were in one incident with kids, and of the remaining 81 cases, three ended up dying. Um, and, and then there are more recent reports from China with five cases in Taipei from 1975 to 1981, 30 in Taiwan in uh, 1988 to 1993, and most recently three fatalities from Vietnam in 2002, uh, where they were uh, illegally manufacturing. Uh, they were... They were using it in a uh, illegal manufacturing operation to kill rats. Okay, mechanism of action. Uh, fluoroacetate uh, was the one of the first substances whose toxicity was shown to depend on metabolic act- activation uh, or lethal synthesis. Um, basically what it is is it's very similar to acetate. So what it does is it, uh, fluoracetate combines with coenzyme A to form fluoroacetyl-CoA, which can substitute for acetyl-CoA. Um, and in- introduce itself into the TCA cycle. Um, then you get a metabolite uh, to fluorocitrate, which inhibits aconitase and then inhibits uh, halts further uh, progression of the TCA cycle. Um, so, let's see. Uh, manifestations of uh, fluoroacetate poisoning are mainly direct... Uh, and indirect consequences of the impaired oxidative <coughs> metabolism and uh, stopping the TCA cycle. Um, so let's the, see. They have it, uh, Oxoglutarate uh, is a precursor for glutamate, and it's uh, it, it, it's excitatory neurotransmitter in the CNS. That's required for a mis- efficient removal of ammonia via the urea cycle. Uh, Glutamate is also required for glutamine synthesis and uh, uh, glutamine depletion has been observed in the brain, in the brains of uh, rodents that were po- poisoned with a uh, fluoroacetate. Uh, because uh, you stop the TCA cycle, you also get ATP depletion and then you get uh, gluconeogenesis uh, with that. And this ultimately can lead to uh, metabolic acidosis. Okay. Hence the tie it to today. H- Uh, So, uh, fluoroacetate poisoning is associated with citrate accumulation in uh, several tissues. And again, this goes back to the aconitase uh, inhibition. It can uh, uh, block glucose glucose utilization and and end up in uh, uh, hyperglycemia uh, in experimental fluoroacetate poisoning. And uh, you can also end up with hypoglycemia secondary to glycogen depletion. Okay. So then, hypocalcemia. Uh, so rats uh, showed a uh, significant reduction in calcium concentrations within two and a half hours of being uh, poisoned, and one one out of four dogs uh, seemed to show that they also had uh, calcium, and it happened to be one that also started convulsing uh, in a dog in a dog study. Uh, making us think that seizures are probably due to the complexing of calcium uh, in the spinal cord. Okay, and then uh, resulting, I oh, say fluoride, fluoride uh, concentrations are far below those, in the actual <coughs> fluoride can become uh, 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 separated from the uh, fluoroacetate, and the resulting fluoride concentrations are far below that encountered in the, uh, uh, acute fluoride poisoning, suggesting that uh, the fluoride ion component of uh, fluoroacetate probably doesn't combine, com- contribute very much to the uh, hypercalcemia. Uh, so toxicokinetics, um, toxicokinetics of fluoroacetate are limited, the, the data on them are limited. Um, it seems to be absorbed rapidly, you get a peak plasma concentration in rabbits in 0.5 to 3 quarters of an hour and uh, about two-and-a-half hours in sheep. Uh, Absorbed fluoracetate seems to be excreted in the urine, and in uh, mice it has uh, at least seven, seven different metabolites. Uh, the uh, toxicity appears to be uh, 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 concurrent with the peak uh, plasma concentrations that are obtained, and it seems to be species variant on uh, whether on how quickly it's eliminated. Um, and it seems to be very poorly absorbed through the skin. But it it can be absorbed through the respiratory mucosa. Which I think I actually looked at one study where if these things get punctured, like it already attacks the sheep, and it just doesn't
0: kill the sheep, but punctures the fluoroacetate collar, the sheep actually don't get toxic.
5: Because it doesn't absorb through the sheep's skin if the collar leaks on the sheep. They've looked at that aspect. Okay, so they, uh, as far as acute uh, toxicity is concerned, a uh, 1946 study kind of did all sorts of classifications, one through four of the type of uh, poisoning that you get, but they uh, later found, same same guys later found that it really has little rev- relevance to human poisoning, so we'll stop there with that. Um, so they uh, they did report a delay in the onset of uh features in humans from about half an hour to three hours during this period. Uh, they're assuming that basically the TCA cycle we talked about earlier is being disrupted. Um, so in, ingestion is uh, typically the major uh, route of uh, poisoning and uh, lethality to humans tends, seems to be about 2 to 10 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, within an hour of ingestion you start to get nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. Uh, and then sweating, apprehension, confusion, and agitation soon follow. And then you start to get uh, all sorts of uh, dysrhythmias, tachycardia, bradycardia, uh, S V T, AFib, VTAC, uh, seem to come shortly thereafter. You can get uh, interval uh, abnormalities, Q T C prolongation, and ultimately hypotension. The most common neurologic fe- feature is uh, seizures, and the they may have uh, may they may recur over the course of the next several days uh, you may end up with a coma that lasts several days as well uh, less common features that you get include lots of things but um, also uh, metabolic acidosis uh, and there's one girl who had a cerebellar dysfunction a week after uh, ingestion of the compound so uh, uh, there are suggestions that repeated long-term exposure uh, caused problems as a 59-year-old male uh, was <coughs> pest controller was uh, ended up having renal failure but this was never completely proven. Um, so the serum calcium concentrations have been res- measured in relatively few human poisoning. Uh, there was a uh, report of VTAC, fib and convulsions on a 17-year-old with QT prolongation and a calcium of 1.6 millimoles per liter. Uh, calcium chloride seemed to treat the QT interval and dropped it from 400 to 330 milliseconds. Um, and then they had another patient, girl, who was having uh, PVCs and uh, IV uh, calcium chloride returned the uh, EKG to normal. So the... Uh, I'm Contrast that uh, Key at all found that the initial mean total serum ca- uh, concentrations did not differ sig- significantly between fatalities and 31 <coughs> survivors. Uh, however, later in the course of the stay, uh, 57% of those who died were hypocalcemic compared with only 36% <coughs> of survivors. Okay, so long-term sequelae. Uh, survival f- uh, from even serious intoxication uh, is usually uh, associated with complete recovery. Ah, uh, there has been an episode of uh, cerebellar ataxia present that persisted in a teenage woman, and then a young man ended up with uh, after uh, seizures and one episode of bfib fib lasting ten minutes. Ended up with grand mal epilepsy, cortical blindness, and uh, divergent strabismus, d- d- divergent strabismus, tetraplegia, and cogwheel rigidity. Nine nine years later, so you c- uh, so management Uh, sodium fluoracetate uh, poisoning is considered fairly serious hypotension acidemia have uh, raised uh, creatinine concentrations and have been identified as one of the most serious predictive uh, predictors of fatal outcome Uh, there have been several antidotes that have been investigated however they're all unproven in humans uh, meaning that at this point the only thing that the article really recommends is supportive care including uh, correction of uh, hypocalcemia uh, gastric lavage within one hour is a possibility. Alternatively, you can give uh, activated charcoal as it does bind uh, fluoroacetate, uh, but there's no evidence that it benefits the uh, course of the poisoning. Uh, it can be best managed in the intensive care unit, and then controlled convulsions with a, with a benzodiazepine, and then the metabolic acidosis can be managed with uh, sodium bicarbonate, and renal failure can be managed. Uh, with dialysis as, as needed. Um, so any patient showing a serious toxicity due to this compound, uh, it's important to, to correct their uh, hypocalcemia uh, as it was shown to prolong survival in fluoracetate uh, poisoned cats uh, But uh, it, with calcium chloride, but calcium gluconate really didn't show any value in mice. So then the antidotes that uh, I talked about earlier. So Ethanol, acetate, sodium succinate, sodium-2-ketoglutarate have all been assessed in animals, uh, basically uh, uh, trying to stop the uh, TCA cycle from being disrupted uh, for the most part. Um, So, let's see, ethanol, uh, uh, significant reduced mortality in mice, guinea pigs, and rabbits. Uh, if you gave them subcutaneous ethanol within 30 minutes of the poisoning, uh, they, uh, however, the uh, it, they didn't feel that the, the claim that uh, this was effective in a single clinical poisoning was could be supported uh, because it was uh, because of the delay, because of the quick time that the ethanol was given. Uh, let's see, acetate uh, was given to compete with fluorescein for binding acetyl CoA. Uh, it was effective in animals, uh, though it was no more effective than calcium and of no additional value when given in, co- in uh, combination with calcium, so they didn't feel that that could uh, necessarily be recommended. Uh, sodium succinate uh, was ineffective in reducing mortality in the fluoroacetate uh, poison mice, um, whereas giving the sodium succinate with uh, calcium gluconate actually did seem to be protective. So, again, the calcium seems to be the uh, key here. And then there are other things that they are trying at this point, but they are not yet fully published.
0: Yeah, for for many time. years,
5: everyone kept citing this really old article on
0: monoacetin uh, or glycerol monoacetate. It was a, think a, a a primate study in monkeys where they poisoned them and they supposedly got better. But unfortunately, it's never been available outside of the lab, and so you really can't get monoacetin. And then people have tried this alcohol infusions because that was something they were using for ethylene uh, glycol, <coughs> um, you know, toxicity at the time, and you know, two or three cases where it's been used, it's hard to say whether it really makes a difference, but certainly some sub- substance with some comfort zone in using um, for toxicity. But whether it makes a difference in inhibiting them or disinhibiting them, trying to the silic so, like acid cycle, we don't really know. So, it's supportive care and correct the calcium is really the, the mainstay. But it's a pretty serious toxin when mm-hmm. you uh, get exposed to it. All right. Well, that's an important one. Certainly one I think um, people are worried about terrorists terrorists getting a hold of. I think there was an episode where people tried to um, at least make a veiled th- threat of using that to protect the coyotes and using it to poison people who uh, are doing that. But um, I, so I support the bill that's going to be put forward if anyone wants to co-sponsor it, if think of the other part of the paper, because they couldn't find enough support. and all the other things that we're doing for terrorism to really talk about this one obscure uh, chemical that's still out there in small amounts. So speaking of other obscure chemicals, we'll finish up here with a fun one that always seems to show up on board questions, a cyanide-like substance called sodium azide. Laura?
4: So this uh, substance, sodium azide, um, is a widely used chemical and uh, probably most commonly known to be in airbags. Um, this is a case report of um, a laboratory equipment salesman who, a um, 30-year-old male, who was found comatose at home after he ingested, intentionally, 15 to 20 grams of sodium azide. Uh, he had a history of depression, and obviously he had been recently depressed. He came into the hospital comatose. Blood pressure was 2 times over 1 or 2, plus a 100. Uh, his pupils were fixed and dilated. He had a right retinal hemorrhage. His muscle tone was flaccid. And the remainder of the exam is uh, listed as unremarkable. He did have the presence of bayside noted on urine tox testing. Um, I'm not sure how long that took to come back, but initially his labs were not that remarkable. Um, And uh, despite being intubated immediately, uh, having gastric lavage, uh, receiving 50 grams of activated charcoal, mannitol, as well as bicarbonate, um, he developed sinus bradycardia, then VTAC, then b couldn't be resuscitated, and died uh, less than five hours after the initial ingestion an autopsy was admitted, omitted uh, at the uh, family's request. During the resuscitation efforts, what's really interesting is that members of the team were reporting headaches, lightheadedness, and nausea, um, and so they did a cyclical resuscitation, um, working in smaller shifts to avoid exposure. Um, nobody noticed any particular disorder. <coughs> uh, what's noticed, What's interesting is like in their cases of um, vomiting, um, it could, this could have been one of those hysterical. Uh, secondary reactions. Maybe one person noted something and it was copied. Um, And perhaps there really was an exposure coming off of the patient. Um, So to go back to what uh, the azide ion is, uh, it's a linear 3-nitrogen compound. Um, It is a salt. It's uh, used as sodium azide, potassium azide, and lead azide. Um, And uh, these uh, um, acids, hydrozoic acid or azoamide, will boil at human body temperature, producing a colorless pungent gas um, that can be toxic when it's inhaled. Um, And so the interesting thing about azide is that it rapidly degrades into nitrogen gas. This makes it useful in uh, airplane escape chutes and automobile safety bags. And what's also pretty interesting is that because the reaction uses up the azide, there's no risk of toxicity once the airbag is inflated. And this is important in emergency medicine patients that present to the ER after an uh, inflation of a bag, and they may have what appears to be a burn or rash uh, from the bag inflating, and in fact, really the potential danger is that they sustain a fracture of the nasal bone or um, abrasion so that they don't have any toxic chemical exposure. Um, the other uh, thing that's important is uh, in terms of disposal of these airbags. Um, is that uh, they're um, being found in cars and junkyards, etc., are insignificant because the azide that's used is uh, in very minimal concentrations. Um, the uh, importance of azide toxicologically is that it uh, couples oxidative phosphorylation. Um, and most uh, cases of toxicity are related to industrial lab exposure. Um, and usually um, the fumes of the hydrozoic acid um, the sy- initial signs and symptoms are hypotension, tachycardia, hyperventilation, headaches, diaphoresis, nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea, and these resolve uh, within removal from the exposure. Um, people that uh, are chronically exposed and uh, hypertensive patients who have been treated with sodium amazide for up to two years have had no notable side effects, um, and regarding the hypertension, um, the uh, uh, sodium azine is investigated as was investigated in 1950s as a potential antihypertensive agent, but its use was limited due to the side effects at low doses. Um, there have only been two previously reported uh, fatal cases. Um, uh, the same as this case were due to suicidal ingestion um, with quantities unknown, but they were, um, in this uh, case, estimated to be 15 to 20 grams. Um, the average lethal human dose would be expected to be about 2.5 grams. Um, in all cases death was uh, precipitous, uh, seizures were not seen, and uh, of particular interest in this case is that the observation that members of the resuscitation team exhibited signs of mild toxicity. Um, so this could have been from the hydrozoic acid as given off by the patient's respiration. Um, and uh, so this has implications including the use of short-term involvement shifts in medical personnel. Um,
0: and people suggest this, the boiling point is 37 degrees for hydrozoic acid is like cooling the patient off during the resuscitation. Yeah. We do that for other reasons now, but um, maybe reduce your hydrozoic yeah. acid exposure.
4: So yeah, it's uh, because of the boiling time point uh, is 37 degrees Celsius, uh, it would uh, relative, rel- readily volatilize the lungs, mucous membranes and even produce. Yeah. And then um, uh, the, the hypothermic patient might uh, retard evaporation. Um, Methemoglobin uh, was thought to be useful, however, this was not shown to be true on um, the case report. Um, and there was also an attempt to treat with sodium nitrite and that was also abandoned. And the reason this was even thought about was because animal, experience, animal experiments in which methemoglobinemia was induced, um, uh, this was protective against subsequently administered sodium um, So. It doesn't appear to be protective once the exposure has already occurred.
0: Um, yeah, so it used to be some people used to treat as per cyanide with the first two components of the cyanide kit and I think older versions of some of the textbooks have suggested that, but it sounds like at least from that study it's not of any value.
4: Not of any value and it will be hard to find cyanide kits now that we have development. and um, it is dialyzable, so it means cyanide as metabolites so maybe in mass ingestions. If you could um, start it precipitously enough, certainly the blood pressure would tolerate it for hypertensive patients.
0: All right, well, good. Another acid. This is one that we sometimes see around the hospital because. Does anyone know what it's used for in the hospital? It's what's used in culture counters to get your differential of your. It's used to one of the stains in getting the uh, CBC done. Well, anyway, not your usual um, mud pile here. Some things to think about in the broader differential for those head scratcher kind of cases and just some um, items to uh, uh, obscurity that are sometimes of interest and often show up on board
2: questions, certainly in toxicology. So until next time, I'll uh, see you then.